This is the official Sasta podcast with your host, Harry Stebbings. And as you all know, you can find me on Snapchat at H Stebbings with two Bs and the main man behind all Sasta magic, Mr. Jason Lemkin on Twitter at Jason LK. And such exciting times ahead with Sasta Annual 2018, the greatest SAS conference on earth, now just three weeks away. And I'm blown away by the speaker lineup from the founders of Box to Atlassian to HubSpot. It's going to be a very special event. And to join this incredible lineup and Jason and I at the event in San Francisco, all you need to do is head over to sastaannual.com and when you purchase your tickets enter the promo code drinks with harry and you will not only get 10% off your ticket price but an invite to an exclusive mojito only event with me amazing that that could be an incentive these days but very kind of jason and to the show today i'm thrilled to welcome fred shilmover now fred is the ceo and co-founder of insight squared one of boston's premier tech startups paving the way in the sales intelligence space throughout the insight squared journey fred has raised over 25 million dollars in vc funding from the likes of DFJ, Bessemer, Salesforce, and Atlas Venture. Prior to founding Insight Squared, Fred was a corporate development associate with Salesforce Ventures, and before that, he held several key roles at Bessemer Venture Partners, including associate and director of IT. He's also a board member of TUG, an organization that brings together tech entrepreneurs with social enterprises that support at-risk youth. And I have to say a huge thank you to Mr. Jason Lemkin for the intro to Fred today, without which this episode would not have been possible. However, before we move into the show state, how do I manage and measure my team with clear objectives? Well, you should try a team to set clear, measurable objectives for your company, create a one-page strategy that links to your execution and measurable progress, and align your entire company to what matters most. A team uses OKRs to identify progress bottlenecks early, allowing you to scale your SaaS faster and better. A team is the unified and integrated three-in-one platform for strategy, objectives, and performance management. Simply head over to ateam.com, that's A-T-I-I-M.com, and get a free SAS CEO's Guide to OKRs for 2018. That's A-T-I-I-M That really is a must. But that's quite enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Fred Shilmover, co-founder and CEO at Insight Squared. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Fred, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Jason Lemkin and Zorian for the intro, but thank you so much, Fred, for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. I'd love though, to kick off with a two to three minute bio of you and how you made your way into what I call the wonderful world of SaaS. Yeah, so I have a bit of an unusual background. I actually started my career as an IT consultant, had an IT consulting practice, and one of my customers was a venture capital firm named Bessemer Venture Partners. And one theme in my career is I always want to work with really smart people, and I met these folks, and I thought, this is the smartest group of people I've ever met. I have to be a venture capitalist. They didn't necessarily agree, so I convinced them to hire me first as their local IT guy, then quickly got promoted to run global IT for them. And then I kept writing business plans until they finally let me on the investment team. I had an opportunity to present one of my ideas to the whole company, and we talked about it in one of our annual offsites for a while and actually considered starting and incubating the company at Bessemer. But that really started my transition to venture capital. And as I made that transition, I actually realized I was pretty passionate about being on the other side of the table and starting a company. I knew I wanted to be in SaaS and cloud computing. I didn't know what company. So I took a few years to explore that and went to business school. During business school, I had the opportunity to work for Salesforce.com 
Dom for a gentleman named John Samorjai and their corporate development now Salesforce Ventures Group and got to see sort of the entire SaaS landscape from the industry leader and understand their strategy and understand where they were thinking of going. And I kind of had this realization at that point, this company that was, you know, two billion in revenue, incredibly innovative, great people, well-resourced. And I was using Excel for all of the analysis that I did for John. And I thought maybe there's actually a structural reason why there should be a company who kind of focuses exclusively on this task. I do have to ask before we dive into the meat of the show, so to speak, were there any big takeaways for you from seeing the insides and the processes of working at such a behemoth like Salesforce? So interestingly, other than that short time at Salesforce, Insight Square is the biggest company I've ever worked for. So my heart is in in small and mid-sized companies and sort of seeing the diseconomies of scale that smaller businesses have. And that's something I learned at Salesforce. Like they, they have incredible economies of scale at that size. And there's things that they could do that a small business can't. And that actually did turn into a big aha moment for how we started Insight Squared and sort of the approach we took, which is start at the small end of the spectrum, sort of the SMB side and keep building the performance until uh, we were able to satisfy enterprise customers, which we do now. And in that process, sort of, we, we have this ease of use and ease of deployment, and you don't have the luxury of millions of dollars of resources for analytics at a small business. And not requiring that in the enterprise is actually just as valuable, but by sort of rooting ourselves in SMB, I think that sort of helped us with our identity. And, and I definitely observed that you know, in my time at Salesforce, like just what they could do at scale that I had never seen a company be able to do. I had a recent guest on the show that said it's much easier to move down than up in terms of enterprise to SMB than SMB to enterprise because product complexity at enterprise is always the highest that it could be and you're not going to have to intensify that with the move down. Would you agree with that it's easier to move down than up? No, I, I, I fundamentally, I, th- I think the exact opposite. I don't agree with that. So the space that we're in, business intelligence, it's been around for 35 years and largely unchanged. It's essentially a better version of Microsoft Excel. So BI is typically, you know, more rows of data, relational data, different sources, you know, faster queries. But fundamentally, it hasn't changed. And part of the reason is it's been sold to enterprises. And it's a little bit of technology, essentially a data warehouse with a ton of professional services wrapped around that. And we thought, okay, wait, if we could reinvent business intelligence for the cloud, how would we do it? And we would absolutely not do it that way. So starting at SMB actually worked better. So my co-founder is our head of product, and he likes to say a product manager's job is losing the war to complexity as slowly as possible. And I think if you start with enterprise and you're essentially an outsourced development shop for you know, an IBM or a GE, you're never going to build a repeatable, scalable product. And I think Clay Christensen, like his whole theory of disruption, he wrote the book Innovator's Dilemma, is based on this idea that if you start at the small end of the market with a simple product, over time you develop the performance. And when we started, I think the incumbents looked at us and said, oh, Inside Squared is just a you know a toy app. It's you know cute sales visuals. And over time, we built a ton of power into the product. And all of a sudden, we started getting pulled into enterprise deals. But by keeping our roots and a big part of our customer base in SMB and sort of squarely in mid-market, it forced us to have discipline where we actually have, we do have a professional services team, but it's a relatively small portion of our revenue because the product has to be simple and flexible enough for mid-sized companies to use. And one of the reasons that we're pulled into enterprise. So like, you know, we work with large publicly traded companies that have a BI team and have millions of dollars of business intelligence and the line of business sales, sales operations, they aren't getting what they need from that. It's too complicated. Every time they want to ask it a question, they have to go through an analyst because there's this sort of mathematical thing you can't escape. If you say whatever data 
you have, whatever question you have, we have a tool that can answer that. That's fundamentally a very complex problem set that you're trying to solve for. One of the things we did early on is actually pick the major. Unlike any other of our competitors, we said our major is going to be revenue. Our major is going to be sales. And I, I think we picked the right one. If I think about what keeps me up at night, it's not, will our rent or you know, T&E change? Because I think our accountants are pretty good at forecasting that. It's how much are we going to book in Q4? And you know, it's 15 days or 12 days until the end of Q4. And that's there's still a ton of variability. So I think we picked the right spot to sort of drive value in an organization. And by delivering something that's simple enough for a small and mid-sized company to use to the enterprise, that's how we differentiate against the rest of the market. I think it's really hard to move with a very complex, heavy, professionally services-driven product down market. I think it's much easier for us to add flexibility to our product. And that's something we did. So after many years of being in business, we launched a product sort of right, right about a year ago that was there to extend the flexibility of what Insight Squared can do. The product is called Slate. And in Slate, you can sort of extend our use cases or bring in additional data. But I'm glad we did that years after we started the product versus at the beginning. I'm so pleased you said that about kind of the things that keep you up at night, especially the metric element, because it's it's kind of what all the world of SaaS centers on most of the time. So I'd love to start on what can startup founders do in determining which metrics to really track and measure in their SaaS business in the early days? What are your thoughts on this and kind of building that metric framework? So one of the challenges with metrics, especially in SaaS, is that they take a lot of variables, they're sort of conflated. So I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the classic metrics that David Scott and others talk about is LTV to CAC. And when you talk about LTV to CAC, you're measuring in customer acquisition costs, sales, but also customer retention. And the same thing with the magic number, you're measuring sales growth to sales efficiency, but incorporating customer retention. And my advice is break things apart into their constituent parts so that you actually understand what you're trying to measure. So I'll give you a good example. We don't look as much at LTV to CAC because that's, I think, too much of a composite metric. We look at ACV to CAC. So how much did you have to spend in sales and marketing to acquire one year of contract value? And that makes sense for our business because we sign multi-year contracts. A minimum will sign is one year. And we generally collect a one-year payment up front. So when I compare the marketing and sales costs that I spent last quarter against the ACV that I booked this quarter, I know how capital efficient my sales and marketing engine is. And that's important for me to sort of balance out if I'm going to raise money or if I'm going to invest capital, how much will I have to do to buy that growth? So that that's important. And we measure customer retention separately. So I guess one big broad piece of advice is figure out what you're trying to accomplish and try to get as specific a metric as you can to accomplish that. SaaS metrics tend to conflate too many variables, in my opinion. You said about ACV to CAC. What ACV to CAC would make you sleep soundly at night? Well, again, it depends on the dynamic of your business. If you're like us and you collect payment one year up front, then a one-to-one ACV to CAC means that you don't need any working capital to finance growth. I think that's the ideal state. Essentially, you may be financing for one quarter, but that's very easy to do. So I think the ideal state is as close to one as you can get, but you have to balance that out with your growth imperative. So my view is the faster you want to grow, to some extent, the less efficient you're going to be. And if you think about that, like if you did no marketing and just had a website up there and didn't invest any more in your content, that kind of thing, you know, you wouldn't have much marketing cost and leads would come in because of a prior brand awareness. So if we just shut off all of our marketing spend, we'd still get plenty of leads and we'd still get plenty of sales. So anything that we add on top of that is by definition going to be less efficient than free. And as you go further and further and try to grow faster and faster, you're going to get less efficient. So it really depends on how you're balancing out growth and the investment 
investment that you want to make in that growth. So if your cost of capital is low, then grow faster. If your cost of capital is high, then you may want to think about balancing that. I'm really interested. You said that about the payment up front. And obviously with the clear kind of cash flow benefits that it has. I'd love to hear though, when the inflection point was for you that that was actually a possibility with kind of existing and large clients, because a lot of founders that I speak to have that struggle where no clients want to pay cash up front. They're unsure of the sustainability of the business. How did you navigate that? And when was that inflection point in people being willing to do that? It's a great question. I have a two-part answer. So first of all, you never know until you ask. And that was a tough thing for us early on when we were just starting out. And you know we didn't know if we were going to be in business 12, 18 months from now. <laughs> uh, we had to first prove that we had a product that was worth selling. So we did month to month. And then we decided one day to say, well, why don't we ask for a year up front? And something like 60, 70% of our customers said yes, without a lot of sales training, without a lot of pressure. So you never know until you ask. That's one of the hardest things to learn, I think, in sales. The other point that I'd make is the reason that we did it initially was not about the cash flow benefit. As we scale, that became much more important. The reason that we did it relatively early on was to get a commitment. So the product that we sell, and I think a lot of SaaS products aren't just about the tools, but about changing something in your business. And we wanted to make sure that people had skin in the game and were committed to the change management. So you know, if you want to improve your forecasting accuracy, which is one of the use cases that Insight Squared helps with, you've got to change behaviors in your team. You've got to create new workflows and patterns and behavior and routine than you had before. We want to make sure that people were committed with us for the journey because we were investing a lot of time and energy up front with the customer. We want to make sure that they were invested uh, right alongside with us. So we did it initially not for the cash payment, but we did it initially to make sure that customers were committed to their ultimate success with our product. I'm so pleased you said that about the behavioral commitment. We had Des Trainer at Intercom on the show recently, and he said that small companies are happy to change how they work to your product, but large companies want to change your product to how they work. Is that very much similar to how you've seen the market reaction for your product and for Insight Squared? I mean, to, to some extent, that point goes back to your earlier question about is it easier to go up or down or down to up? I think we absolutely have seen larger customers be more demanding of us. And in particular, in demanding of the level of flexibility that we have and the services that we offer. And those are sort of things that we had to mature into as an organization. But at the same time, large organizations have had access to business intelligence for a long time and have become, to some extent, disillusioned with the offerings out there. And one of the things that we really bring to the table isn't just the toolkit, the ability to do more calculations faster, but the fact that we take an opinion. So one of the things that we have that even large enterprises don't have is an economy of scale or our, our economies of scale with regard to knowledge. So we work with thousands of, uh, tens of thousands really, sales leaders and sales operations leaders. And we're able to get those requests that you mentioned, sort of those demands from and aggregate them across and find what the best practices are. So it's not about folks at Insight Squared know everything about sales operations. We, we think we're, we have a pretty smart group, but it's actually not about us. It's about the fact that because we're specialists in sort of revenue analytics, we're able to crowdsource so much knowledge and get best practices. So yes, the larger customers tend to have more flexibility demands, but they also come to us for best practices. And I think that that's a real benefit of our approach. You said about your kind of intense expertise around sales operations. I'd love to discuss the building and scaling of the sales team and, and especially the inside sales team. Often the numbers thrown around with regards to the feasibility of the kind of ACV allowing you to have one. Jason Lemkin says 3K. What do you think is the lowest ACV that one can feasibly have as a sales team to kind of scale? 
So I'm not a, generally speaking, I'm not a big fan of rules of thumb because everything, the answer to everything is it depends and it's really contextual. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So you look at a business on the low end in terms of price point, like constant contact before they were acquired. And I remember, you know, their average monthly fee was something like the 40 to $50 range. It was relatively low and it wasn't completely sort of shopping cart based. It was sales assisted sale. They didn't call them salespeople. They called them customer service and the trial ability of constant contact was really easy. And as a result, you'd have someone who said, I'm a customer service or a customer support person call you, help you set up your first email campaign and sort of encourage you to put your credit card in and buy. So is that inside sales or is that e-commerce sort of shopping cart type sales? So I I think it depends. I think absolutely if you have a real velocity, self-service, trial ability, I think is a really important component here. How easy is it for the customer to de-risk their purchase? Mm-hmm. And, and me, meaning how confident can they be through their evaluation that the purchase will yield the results they want? And having an ability to do that in a low friction manner lowers the threshold at which you could sell software. On the flip side, if you're selling ERP and you've got to change, import 10 years of data, import hundreds of business processes and workflows and change the user interface that 10,000 people use, that's going to be a pretty <laughs> considered purchase where trialability is pretty low, where you may look at a video but you don't know if it's actually going to manifest itself when you buy the system. So it's a spectrum. And on the low end, it's hard to divide the line where inside sales picks up. Now, for us, there's a bunch of free apps that we have that give some trialability of what it's like to work with Inside Squared. But right now, we insist to the extent that we do proof of concepts, it's curated, meaning you work with an account executive on our team to do that. So if that's the type of a business model you have, I don't think 3K is a particularly sustainable ASB. I think it would have to be considerably higher. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about kind of your experience in building the inside sales team. So I'd love to hear your core lessons and maybe tips in terms of developing and scaling that inside sales team. What what would those kind of wise words of wisdom be? I think the culture of the team is critical. And it's also one of these things that that's hard to change. I'm really proud of the culture that we have. And then there are some elements of our culture that I've wanted to change and I've really struggled to change. So I think one piece of advice I would give is get it set on the right course early. And we have a culture of accountability. And part of that is through transparency. So transparency is one of our company values. And I post our board of directors decks, of course, with you know highly sensitive information redacted, but we have a pretty high degree of transparency in the organization. And as a result, the same applies to sales. So there's accountability. Another element of our culture, I would classify it as camaraderie. And the way I define that is we want competition, but not at the expense of someone else. So I regularly see people helping out a struggling account exec or a new BDR taking time out of their day, that's a result of our culture. One of the things that's great, and again, this this isn't possible in all sales environments, but if you can have a real career track. So we have 13 grades from initially joining the team as a BDR all the way through senior account executive before, you know, an ability to be promoted to a team lead and a manager. That's a really great career and the compensation varies pretty dramatically. That's a great career track and it's especially great when you have a big portion of your team come up through that farm system. Mm-hmm. I think that builds a lot of loyalty and culture. And again, it's not possible if you're selling something that requires you know 25 years of experience in a particular field, you may not be able to do that. But in our sales model, that's been a big advantage. Lars Nilsson, who's head of inside sales at Cloudera, said on the show recently that attrition of sales team is his biggest concern and thing that keeps him up at night. Would you say that's the thing that keeps you up at night most when thinking about the sales? 
sales team? That really depends on what your ramp rate is to productivity. And I'll explain why. If it takes you 12 months to ramp someone to productivity, that 12 months is really expensive because you're paying them salary, they're consuming marketing resources, pipeline resources, and you're not getting the sales productivity. So if you have folks who are fully productive and you know losing them will cost you 12 months of productivity, you're to some extent almost held hostage there. And so that could be particularly painful. Now, on the flip side, if your ramp is three months and you have a really defined sales process, really great training program, and you're able to get someone from either promotion from BDR or potentially even you know externally hired productive in three months, you're going to take less of a hit when you lose someone. But regardless, it's incredibly painful and disruptive. So you know we focus a lot of energy on employee retention. And I think the way I explain to folks is when you're thinking about your job, there's a lot of levers you can pull. One of them is compensation. Another is, are you learning? Another is, are you happy? Do you like the person sitting to your left and your right? Because that's kind of important. You're spending a lot of sort of your waking days here, your waking hours here. You shouldn't come and hate the people you work with. And do you feel like you're learning? Is, is the company investing in you? And one thing I never neglect to mention is length of commute. I don't know if you've seen the studies, but after a certain amount of compensation, and it's relatively low, length of commute is the primary <laughs> driver of workplace happiness. So like you should decide because there's a lot of noise in the marketplace. There's obviously a lot of venture capital and other investment floating around, and there's a fierce competition for talent. And my advice to folks is balance all those levers and make the decision that's right for you. And, and we try to provide as much as we can on those. So we may not be the highest paying place in town, but I think it's an amazing place to work where you could develop friendships, relationships, learn an incredible amount. We talk about giving our team a sales MBA. One of the cool advantages we have is unlike if we were selling medical devices and we had to teach our sales team Sandler methodology and how heart valves work, here, the better you are as a salesperson, the better you will be at selling Insight Squared. So it's kind of a relatively unique opportunity being in the sales enablement space. I'm really intrigued to combine two of the elements we discussed there being sales and culture. One always challenging balance to me is how do you create this culture of accountability and achievement without though the extreme fear and paranoia of not always hitting exactly quota? How do you look to balance that? It's not easy to balance those things. Obviously, there's a lot of sort of trappings, and especially in tech startups with ping pong tables and shuffleboard tables and all things that we have here. You know, we've got the kegerators, we do the Friday happy hour, and it's hard to balance a, a high performance team versus not having it devolve into just a big hangout. And I think one thing that's important to do is to separate the concepts of performance and results. I think it's the way to actually drive higher results. But you asked, how do you make people not afraid of missing quota? The quota attainment is simply a result of the performance. And the performance of the things that you have control over, you don't have direct control over the results or the deals or what the or what your prospective customers will do. You do have control over, do you show up to work on time? Are you prepared? Do you do your pre-call planning? Are you hitting your activity goals? It's amazing how much activity and results correlate. <laughs> and yet, it's also incredible sometimes that people don't do all of their activity. So I think by not focusing as much on the fear of missing quota, it's much more important to focus on the things that you can control and that drive that and that are measurable. And quite frankly, some of them don't take talent, like showing up to work on time, being prepared <laughs> for your meetings. These things don't take talent. They just take work. We had, there's a professor at Harvard Business School who teaches sales. His name is Frank Cespedes. And we were fortunate enough last year to have him, or I guess this year, 2017, to have him speak at our kickoff in January. And in his talk, he said, look, guys, like sales is not physics. It's not complicated. 
but it's not easy. And it's hard to do the things that drive results, but I think it's much easier to measure them than just to freak out over, am I going to hit my number this quarter? The final discussion and final question. Shan Sinhart High Five said that accidents happen at intersections with regards to the kind of combination of marketing's handover to sales and where conversion can be lost between the two. Would you agree with that? And how do you look to navigate that difficult handoff between marketing and the sales team that we just discussed? Yeah, I mean, for us, that intersection is the BDR team. So a lot of the marketing demand and a lot of the work that sales and marketing do together, sort of the rubber hits the road or the rubber hits the pavement at the BDR team. So I know in a lot of organizations, BDRs are managed by marketing because they're an extension of what marketing do. On the flip side, here we have the managed by sales because they are the future salespeople. But that team, sort of a demand generation function, is that intersection. And in a lot of ways, sales and marketing aren't that distinct anymore. At least this part, the demand generation part of marketing that we're talking about when it comes to you know branding and marketing communications, the sort of more traditional uh, components of marketing, that is really distinct. And there's a lot more sort of creativity and messaging that goes into that. The demand generation part of marketing, sort of this digital marketing revolution that started probably 15 years ago, is very quantitative. It is sort of activity and conversion-based. And if you have two departments that aren't working as one, or if you have misalignment at the executive level, if your executives aren't sort of chums and partners, sort of like product management and engineering, those are two halves of one whole. The same thing is with the sort of demand generation component of marketing and sales. They have to operate as one unit. But I will say it is a challenging area for us, even for us who are very quantitatively driven. How do you manage SLAs? How do you manage the fact that we want a high response to marketing demand because it was incredibly expensive to generate? And at the same time, once in a while, we'll get the wrong kind of company that clearly we can't service and we don't want our salespeople wasting their time. And how do you intersect sort of these rules and human judgment? It is a challenging component. I think it starts with alignment at the leadership level and not viewing them as distinct. No, I absolutely love that kind of thesis on the importance of alignment. I would love, though, to move into Fred's 60 seconds faster. So I say a short statement and then you give me your thoughts in 60 seconds or less. How does that sound? Okay, I'll try. So, so logos are expansion. What is it for you, Fred? I'm going to compromise here and say both. You, you can't do one or the other in SaaS. And you think about how SaaS is different from perpetual license software. A company like Salesforce.com goes into the year with 60% of its revenue already contracted and committed. And there's a ton of effort that goes into getting that additional 40%. And if you have more products to sell to your base and you do so successfully, it substantially lightens the load and improves the efficiency of sales. So I think you have to do both. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started Insight Squared? So one of the big areas of change for me as a leader has been around communication. And I think the simplest way I could put it is when you as a leader are absolutely tired of hearing yourself say the same thing over again and communicate the strategy of the idea, that may be the point where you're starting to communicate clearly. What do you think is the least discussed but most worthy topic in SaaS? With with SaaS, it's interesting. Very oftentimes, old is new. So I'll give you examples. You know, account-based marketing is, is a new concept, but anyone who's sold to the Fortune 500 has been doing account-based marketing since they've started. You know, <laughs> customer success is this new department and new theme. And for us, customer success is the responsibility of the whole organization. We do not have a customer success team. We have customer success managers embedded in the team. Same thing with recurring revenue. Like th- These aren't brand new concepts, but we're taking the old, making it new. And I think what we're seeing is sort of the industrialization of sales and software is sort of another industrial revolution where we're reusing old concepts, but they feel new. And then let's finish. What would be your biggest advice to early stage SaaS 
podcast founders, with the years you've now had leading Insight Squared? Find partners who are better than you. That would be the best advice. I couldn't have started the business without my two co-founders. And the reason that I want to work with them is they were better at their respective job than I thought I was at mine. And that's when you know you found the right co-founders. Fred, I was told it would be a fantastic interview. It's, it's been incredible to have you on the show. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Again, I want to say a huge thank you to Fred. Incredible to hear the journey with Insight Squared. And if you'd like to see more from him, you can follow him on Twitter at Fred Schilmover. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes on Sasta at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat. And you can find Jason Lemkin on Twitter at Jason LK. And do not forget, head over to SastaAnnual.com and enter the promo code Drinks with Harry, where you get 10% off your ticket price and an invite to an exclusive mojito only event with me and Jason. It'd be fantastic to see you there. However, before we leave you today, how do I manage and measure my team with clear objectives? Well, you should try a team to set clear, measurable objectives for your company, create a one-page strategy that links to your execution and measurable progress, and align your entire company to what matters most. A team uses OKRs to identify progress bottlenecks early, allowing you to scale your SaaS faster and better. A team is the unified and integrated three-in-one platform for strategy, objectives, and performance management. Simply head over to ateam.com. That's A-T-I-I-M. And get a free SaaS CEO's guide to OKRs for 2018. That's com. That really is a must. As always, from everyone here at Team Sasta, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode when it will only be two weeks until Sasta Annual 2018.